Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Okay, this is a totally off-topic question, but do you refrigerate strawberries? No, right? Like, they don't refrigerate them at the store, do they? From WBEZ Chicago, this is the Nerdette Book Club. I'm Greta Johnson. And as you may know, the way book club works is we've been choosing a book each month and talking about it with a rotating panel of awesome humans. And sometimes the author even shows up. Our May book is The City We Became by N.K. Jemison. And the panel discussion is still happening later this month, two weeks from today, in fact. But today, we're going to bring you a conversation I had with Nora earlier this week for WBEZ event that took place on the interwebs. So as you may already know, Nora, also known as N.K. Jemison, is the author of a bunch of speculative fiction novels and trilogies and short stories. Her series, The Broken Earth Trilogy, won three Hugo Awards in a row. Which, if you don't know what a Hugo Award is, just know it's a big deal. So, as I mentioned, the first book in her new trilogy is out now. It is our May book pick. It's called The City We Became, and if you haven't read it yet, that is totally okay for the sake of this episode. This is actually a spoiler-free conversation that you're about to hear. And if you're wondering what the book is even about, I'm just going to let Nora tell you. So it's set in the real world, um, set in New York City of right now, and in the mythology of the story for, for reasons that become clear over the course of time. Cities, when they reach a kind of certain point of development, become alive. They become sentient entities of their own, able to act on their own in in various ways. And they choose a single human being who is uh, the representative of that city's spirit and, and kind of the director of its energies. You know, you can call that person an avatar if you want. So New York's Avatar Awakens in the prologue, um, which is actually based on a short story that I did a few years ago called The City Born Great. And uh, New York's Avatar Awakens and fights off an existential evil that tends to show up whenever cities become a thing. Then, uh, because New York is too big for a single person to embody, um, he falls into an enchanted slumber and the five avatars that represent the boroughs then awaken. Um, So the story is all about the avatars kind of figuring out what the heck is going on, what are they supposed to do. Also, they're being attacked by creepy tentacle monster creatures. Oh, by the way. Yeah. Well, (laughs) as, as one does. How does one deal with existential horror from beyond? Um, uh-huh, so. uh-huh. Nora and I went on to talk about why, out of all the cities on Earth that she could have brought to life, she chose New York. Her philosophy around why she writes about racism as overtly as she possibly can, and why she never chooses favorite characters. We're going to start with a question from the audience. 
Here's a great question from Ali. Uh, Ali wanted to know which avatar was your favorite to write and which was the most difficult? Uh, there, there isn't really a favorite. Um, I don't really, my head doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. Um, when, I'm, when I'm writing that character's point of view, I'm in that character's head and it's difficult not to care about them at that point. Um, so, you know, basically when I'm writing them, I like them all, <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, you know, readers are, are more likely to kind of develop preferences than writers. Writers have to like everybody, at least while you're writing them. <laughs> so... <laughs> I guess that makes sense just in terms of actually giving all of them a fair shot, right? Well, it's not even that. You know, I've heard other writers talk about this, so I think it's kind of a fairly common thing. But um, my characters speak in my head. I don't really, like, decide that they're going to be XYZ kind of person. Um, I do decide what they do um, and, you know, how much they choose to reveal about themselves. But they're they exist. Um, and regardless of whether I like them or not, they're interesting characters that make me want to write more and read more about them personally. So that's, that's really all I, all I care about. Liking is not like a lot of my characters I don't like, but, um, sure. but I enjoy writing them. Uh-huh. We have a question from someone from Long Island, which is <laughs> what now? If okay. there's any chance of Long Island getting a representative. <laughs> um, all right. So I've been hearing from people in like Yonkers and everything <laughs> since this book came out. Um, I'm like, what do you want now, Long Islanders? What do you want? Um, I'm sorry. So uh, because the short story established the precedent of uh, New York was able to sort of call upon the power of Hoboken. Um, this this showed up in the City Born Greats. Not really a spoiler. Um, well, it's in the first pro. It's in the prologue if you want to think okay. about it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, New York is able to call upon the power of basically the whole tri-state area. And because of that, what that means is that you know all of the greater metropolitan pieces. Um, of New York and exurbs and things like that are fair game, uh, as far as I'm concerned. So it's possible that Long Island might awaken. I don't want to imagine what Long Island's avatar might be like. (laughs) It should be interesting. Let's just say it should be interesting. Remember, I don't like all my characters, but it should be, they should be interesting. (laughs) So I had to work on Long Island a few years ago. (laughs) I have bad experiences. So... um, I have feelings. I have capital F feelings about Long Island. Um, (laughs) I don't know if we're going to see Long Island. I'm not sure how that's going to turn out if we do. All right. Well, it's it's a it's a reasonable answer anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, So you've mentioned the the short story that this sort of germinated from. It's a short story in your collection, How Long Till Black Future Month. Mm -hmm. When you wrote that, did you know then that it would turn into a novel? I had a vague idea at the time that I was writing it that it was one of my possible proof of concepts, but a lot of my short stories are kind of like testers or tasters, whatever you want to call it, for possible novels that I might choose to explore later. And I use the short story, which doesn't always have anything to do with what the novel ultimately ends up being. And this is the first time that I've actually basically made the novel a sequel to the short story. Hmm. But I use the short story just to kind of test drive the world um, and see whether the world and its structure and uh, its power dynamics and all of that 
are ready to handle like a whole novel plot. And it's kind of a way for me to sort of dip a toe into a concept before I commit to like a whole year of working on this book because it does take that long. Um, you know, I can, I've done it in, in three months, but that was, that was an unusual circumstance. It's not fun and I don't ever want to do that again. I was going to say that doesn't sound sustainable by any No, way. it's super not fun. It's, it's super not fun. But uh, before I commit to writing a novel, um, you know, and kind of immersing myself in that world for an extended period of time, especially if I know I'm going to do a trilogy, um, because that's years of my life, um, then I do the short story. And the short story is also available, uh, just FYI for folks, it's available for free on tour.com if you don't have oh, great. a long till Black Future Month. Yeah, awesome. You talked about how you can't have favorite characters and you don't necessarily have to like them, but you always are interested in them. Do you, I mean, New York is such a character in this book. Do you feel the, the same way about the city you live in that way? I mean, I always have. And, and I think that's probably why I decided to write this. I, I've written several stories set in cities, based sort of city fantasies, for lack of a better description. Um, set in New Orleans, set in New York, set in Birmingham, Alabama, which is where my family is from. You know, my mother's side of the family is from Mobile, my father's side is from Birmingham. But anyway, I have always felt like when you visit a city, and this is a thing I've heard other people talk about, um, when you visit a city or when you move there, in a lot of cases, you feel this sense of immediate I am welcome here. I am comfortable here. I could live here. Or the sense of immediate, oh, I don't like this city. It doesn't feel right. It smells mm -hmm. weird, whatever. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, sometimes you get like that sort of in between. You don't quite know. You have to live there for a while to, to, to really pick up on it. Um, that's how I ended up living in Boston for eight years. Um, but, um, but eventually you get a very clear sense of, you know, either this city's character agrees with me or it doesn't. Um, and that's a thing that I've heard other people talk about. So if a city's got that kind of character to it, that kind of energy and personality, then there must be something there that we're all picking up on. So I just made it literal. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like your relationship with New York is complicated? It seems to be like, it seems like you, <laughs> you love it a lot, but it also like, I feel like you weren't, you didn't shy away from also obviously bringing up some of the big problems that New York is facing too in this book. Well, yeah, I mean, all cities are, are like people. This is, this is why I have them embodied in people. Um, people <laughs> are, are, you can love a person, but that person's going to have flaws. That person's going to have, um, you know, character quirks or whatever that you just kind of have to get used to and that aren't going to always be wonderful. I mean, you're not always going to love a place that you live in. Um, in fact, that, that would be strange, I think. Um, to to unequivocally and unquestioningly love some place would be like trying to unquestioningly love uh, another adult person. You know, that's going to be, that's just going to be tough to do. So, you know, I, I've, you, you were not the first person who's characterized this as a relationship. And I like that framing of it just because, like, when you first fall in love with somebody, um, you know, they can do no wrong. You see like a little halo around them, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. They even smell good, all that. Um, and then you get used to it. I know, but you know, like, this is the truth, right? Yeah, 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 yeah totally. I'm with you. I'm with you. But then you get used to them and you're like, yeah, he smells nice, uh. but... 
you know, he needs to put on a little more deodorant or whatever, you know, I mean, that's horrible. But, uh, but, but you get to the relationship point where, you know, you use the bathroom and you don't close the door. Um, you know, when you've reached that point in a relationship, then you can, you know, sort that's of when accept- you really know somebody. Yeah. But, but the, you know, then you've got like the, the gloss, but you've also got the, the, the rough stuff and the not so pleasant parts um and and that's still love you can still love somebody when they don't close the bathroom door you question that love probably a lot but then you still feel it so um so that's kind of you know that's where I am with the city I've been in New York on and off my whole life enough that I've seen it at its worst and at its best. And and I love both aspects of the city. Um, there are things that I would happily change if I could to make the city better. Um, but, you know, that's every place. That's every person. Sure. Yeah. So we've gotten a couple really great questions about the audiobook, which I actually wanted to ask you about, too, because I listened to this book and it was such a pleasure. Um, we'll start with Jordan. Jordan wanted to know if you got a lot of say in the production of the audiobook because it is amazing, which I would like to second what Jordan says. I did request Robin Miles for this because she did such an amazing job with the Broken Earth books. She did, um, yeah. That, you know, I wanted to kind of make sure, and I knew that in this case she was going to have to do accents, she was going to have to do multiple characters um, and all of that, and I've seen, like, she's got the skills and the chops to do it well. She totally did. And, yeah, um, it was amazing. She did. She did. She nailed, like, there were some accents that, like, I've... I, I made Sao Paulo um, have a Portuguese accent. Yep. I actually have never heard anyone speak with a Portuguese accent before. So um, like the, the Portuguese speakers that I know of speak in Portuguese, but I don't know what they sound like in English. So um, she researched that and did a credible imitation of it, or at least credible to me. Um, Portuguese speakers, please speak up. Um, and and she did a great job with it. Um, and then the people at Hachette Audio didn't really tell me that they were planning to do like any like um, kind of interesting Sound production design. stuff yeah. with it. Really? Yeah. And they did. Um, yeah. And they surprised me with that. So yeah, I first started listening to the audiobook, and there's this little intro at the beginning um, where she does this kind of super creepy welcome to New York, um, like a PSA or like a, a tourist commercial. Um, and then just like they mess with it a little bit and it just sent chills down my spine. So it was wonderful to listen to. So it was a good surprise is what you're oh, saying. Oh, super good surprise. I am. Oh, super, great. I'm glad. To hear yeah, that. I love it. I absolutely <laughs> love it. Yeah, I thought it was really because, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't so heavily produced that it felt like an audio drama, but there was just enough where they would tweak the audio if, you know, if 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 there was like a phone call or like something happening over the intercom. And it was just enough to make it it just like it brought it to life in a super compelling way without being too heavy handed. Yeah, I think it made it easier to immerse in. So, Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned your last trilogy, the Broken Earth trilogy. Uh, Obviously, it took place in like a completely different fictional world, like not on Earth, not this universe. Uh, This series obviously Mm -hmm. takes place pretty much like in your backyard. Uh, Why did you Mm -hmm. decide to start a new series in a real place with all the real problems that go with it, including things like, you know, policing and gentrification and racism? 
Uh, I mean, okay, so that's, that's two different questions. Um, why, <laughs> yes. why did I decide to do something in a real place? Well, I've always written about real world stuff. Um, right. Not so much in novels, but as I mentioned before with my short fiction, um, this is not the first uh, city-based fantasy story that I've ever done. There's probably like five or six of them at this point. Um, and so writing in the real world is just a thing that I've always done. Um, this is just the time I've, the first time I've ever done it like big scale. But uh, the other question is, um, why did I decide to engage with gentrification and uh, police brutality and things like that? And that's simply because when I am writing about any world, whatever that world happens to be, um, I feel compelled to speak honestly about the bad things that happen in that world. If I'm going to include oh, sexual assault, for example, um, which you know a lot of people have feelings about that and a lot of people don't want that in their fiction. I don't blame them whatsoever. Sometimes you just wanna read something where you don't have to read about like horrible things happening that people you know or, or yourself might've experienced. Um, but if I'm going to go there, then I'm going to go there in a, a realistic way. And, you know, I, I have some understanding of trauma. I've worked with trauma um, victims and survivors. Um, and so, you know, if I'm going to go there, I'm going to be honest about how I depict that thing. If I'm going to depict New York City, where, you know, I absolutely love this city. I would love to probably live here for the rest of my life. I'm aware of the fact that I may not be able to because the cost of living has gone ridiculous. What with everything happening now with Corona, who the hell knows what's going to happen with the city? Um, you know, so many people out of work means we're probably facing a depression or recession. I've lived in New York during those times. It's not fun. It's not pretty. Um, so we'll see. I haven't decided what I'm going to do. Um, but my father is here. Um, as long as he's here, I'm going to be here. And so I'm going to talk honestly about all of those things that make New York the city that I love and sometimes hate. So Well, and I mean, I think as you say, like you dealt with a lot of similar issues, especially around racism and systemic injustice in your other series. How do you think, how different does it feel to write about them when you do root them in something that's much closer to real life than just like a completely different place? Uh, it doesn't really feel that different to me. You know, I, I certainly, I do have to kind of change up my language a little bit. Um, so, you know, in, in the real world, we actually have terminology for what people look like. I don't have to describe the, the texture of a person's hair. I can say that they have kinky hair like most black people, um, for example, um, where I, you know, like the terms and the language that we use that is specific to our world, I have to make up when I'm in a secondary world. So in some ways it's easier. I can just use existing language. But you know, beyond that, it's the same stuff that I've always done. If I'm writing about a world that isn't real, but I'm still writing about people, and people are all the same, as far as we know, we have not encountered another sentient species of human beings. Um, but um, uh, you know, people being people, they're gonna, they're, there's some, some basic truths to the way that all people interact, um, even across cultures and across, well, worlds. So, you know, and, and our audience is people and they're expecting people to act like people. And that's the part that I have to get through. Um, you know, the world building is just, the world building is a prop within which the people operate, but the people are always going to be about the same. 
So this reminds me of a tweet that you wrote a while back, but actually retweeted recently because you noticed that it was getting some additional attention <laughs> about about people right. who ask you why you're so blatant when you talk about racism and other bigotries. And you pretty resoundingly said that a subtle approach to that just does not work. And I wondered if you would mind kind of walking us through what you talk about in that thread a little bit, because I think it's fascinating and really important. I mean, there's there's kind of two factors at work here. Um, you know, so basically um, what I was addressing in that thread was that people want to know why, like, when they read my fiction, there's like lots of super in your face like I describe all characters. Um, like if I describe uh, a black character, I'm going to describe a white character. If I say that that person is black, I'm going to say that the white character is white. So there's 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 two things at work here. One is that we are not used to seeing certain things called out. The nature of our society, for those of us that come from English speaking societies, the nature of our society is such that a lot of its racism goes unspoken. Um, on purpose. Um, you know, only certain things are supposed to be marked. Everything else is the default, effectively. So, you know, when you read most fiction, usually you see the woman and then you see the black woman in how the narration is usually handled. Um, and you know that the woman is white because she's not marked. You know that the black woman is black because she is very conspicuously marked. And that is how um, fiction has worked in English for generations. Um, so when you deliberately mark the unmarked, um, that's going to stand out to people. That jumps out at people as as hugely blatant or um, you know, kind of like a little bit of a, a little slap in the face. Um, so that's one mechanism that's happening. The other thing that's happening is that the nature of our society also encourages or discourages, let me put it that way, um, also discourages us from talking directly about the, the power dynamics of our world. So, you know, you see tons of science fiction, and this is what the thread was also talking about. We've mm -hmm. seen science fiction for generations, which talked about racism and uh, bigotries of whatever kind, classism, sexism, colonialism, and so on. But because... Right, as allegories in distant worlds, essentially. Right. Because those stories basically created, uh, you know, aliens, one of whom were who were black on one side and white on the other side, and then aliens who were the others, you know, the, the, the two colors flipped. Um, then we had this very, very serious, um, a very special episode where we talked about racism for a hot minute using people that didn't exist in our world. Um, and the very same readers and, and science fiction fans, and in some cases, science fiction writers, um, who were able to talk about these issues in a good way when you were dealing with allegorical versions of people, then went on to say horrible things sometimes about real people in the real world. And they weren't able to make that transition. They weren't actually carrying the values into the real world. Um, so, you know, I don't like, I mean, I, I, I don't mind working with proxies and allegories, but I'm also gonna work with people. I am not gonna, you know, write a fantasy story where the orcs are the only coded people of color and all of the human beings are white. Um, I'm gonna make the humans a range of stuff. I'm gonna have power dynamics among the humans and I'm gonna have orcs. I I'm not ever gonna write about orcs. But um, anyway. But allegoric, you're gonna have allegorical orcs. <laughs> yes, if I ever decided to do uh, that kind of fantasy, I would, I would do it. More with Nora in just a minute. 
Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Okay, so I don't think it's giving away too much to say that there is a force of evil in this book um, that is also embodied by a person. uh, And that person is spreading like these weird white tendrils around. And those tendrils are contagious, but nobody knows if they have them. (laughs) And only some people can Mm. see them, which I think especially right now is like surprisingly resonant given the fact that we're in the midst of a global pandemic. Mm. How eerie is it to have created something that, you know, like I can't imagine you were, you're not talking about coronavirus in that context, Mm. but it is Mm. kind of shocking how resonant it is, isn't it? Uh, I mean, I guess I, I was not expecting um, obviously for, for a pandemic to happen. Who the hell expects that? Um, And I certainly wasn't expecting it to be the, the, the descriptions of the, uh, the woman in white and her minions and energies and forces. Um, I was not expecting that to be so resonant by any stretch. Um, I mean, in some ways it's, uh, you know, the book is uh, a New York Times bestseller. I suspect that's part of the reason why, um, because I'm seeing a lot of chatter from people who never read my stuff before, but who uh, heard about this book, go went out and read The City We Became and are like, oh, hey, I've been hearing all this stuff about N.K. Jemison. Here's this book that she wrote that seems, you know, like in our world, you know, probably easier to deal with than a secondary world. Um, and so I'm getting some new readers as a result of this um, who are coming to it because there's all these articles and because there are reviews and things like that saying, wow, it's super wild to read about this, you know, metaphysical infection happening at the same time as there is a physical infection. Um, so, you know, it's it's horrifying in some ways because, um, you know, personally, I like to escape in my fiction. I don't, I don't know how uh, mm-hmm. other people um, are handling that. So, you know, um, that's terrifying. But on the other hand, it's also, I'm glad that people are finding something in it that is, you know, for them, maybe it is an escape. Uh, maybe it is something that allows them to escape because if nothing else, um, you can fight the tendrils. Um, in, right. I was just about to say, yeah, yeah. Whereas you cannot right now do a whole lot about Corona. Right. So. so you've described the evil force in the book as basically a Cthulhu, which is the like octopus man monster <laughs> made famous by sci-fi writer HP Lovecraft. Uh, um, Deidre wanted to know, Deidre said, I've never read H.P. Lovecraft, but I know his work is part of the story of this book. What am I missing in this book if I'm not really familiar with Lovecraft? Nothing. Um, in the book, <laughs> yeah, uh, in the book, <laughs> I describe the specific pieces of Lovecraft that I'm engaging with. Um, so, you know, it is entirely <laughs> possible for people to read this book and understand what I'm talking about with respect to Lovecraft without actually having to read Lovecraft. Um, that said, uh, for those who have actually read 
uh, some Lovecraft. Um, I, I suspect there are elements of it that are more resonant um, because they're picking up on some subtleties that, that I don't explicitly mark. So for example, and this is not really a spoiler, but the, the embodiment of the forces and the tentacles and whatnot that you see um, is called the woman in white. And the woman in white appears in various forms. But the woman in white is, is friendly, is cheerful even, is hilarious. I meant for her to be kind of comic relief. Can I just say the way Robin Miles would laugh <laughs> She did such a good job. She had fun book, with that. Didn't she? It was yeah. perfect. It was so yeah. good. Yeah. 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 Go on. I'm sorry. I just had to interrupt you with that because it was amazing. <laughs> no, no. She she did a mwahaha that was just perfect. Um, <laughs> but um, so, yeah, the woman in white is is modeled, um, obviously not in the same physical way, but uh, modeled on, and I'm going to mangle the pronunciation, Nyarlathoep. Which is, yeah, I know. Um, Lovecraft, you just like throw marbles in your mouth and garble whatever you can. Yeah, wow, that's just a bunch of consonants. Yeah, it's just a whole lot of, I don't even know. But so, so Nyarlathoep. Um, if I'm not mangling the pronunciation of that, I am, I'm sure. Um, but Nyarlathoep was uh, a, a representative of the old gods um, who showed up as affable evil. Um, Nyarlathoep was, was itself, um, I don't know, I mean, he's always identified as he, but Nyarlathoep was itself in, in Eldritch Abomination, but it always appeared as this, this charming, friendly, relatively pleasant human being, uh, male human being, and frequently as a person of color. Um, So, I mean, people who are familiar with that aspect of Lovecraft, for example, may recognize kind of what I'm doing with the woman in white, but otherwise you don't really need to know. Um, There's descriptions of the pieces of Lovecraft that I'm engaging with, some some letters that he wrote in which uh, he kind of was really blatant about his racism towards his fellow New Yorkers. Um, There's also the short story, The Horror at Red Hook, if you want to read any Lovecraft, read that one, where Red Hook is Red Hook, New York, in Brooklyn, where Ikea is. But, uh, you know, that's that's the most that I knew about Lovecraft. I mean, about Red Hook, sorry, um, before I moved to New York for, for good. But the horror at Red Hook is all about how Lovecraft effectively is is uncomfortable with the existence of people of color and immigrants and things like that and mm-hmm. and goes off on how they're actually representatives of evil so but that's described in the book so you are once again subverting a number of paradigms is what you're saying uh, i mean i suppose lovecraft himself was trying to I think negatively characterize things that in this country we've always described as positives, you know, I mean, not necessarily in a good way. Um, I grew up with the whole concept of the melting pot. Well, I mean, you know, as I was growing up, we were all like, but we don't want to be melted. Um, But, you know, the melting pot at least was framed as a positive thing when I was a kid or at least for some people. And Lovecraft's reaction to the diversity and the richness and the complexity of the people of New York was horror, was abject terror. Um, So he was already subverting an existing paradigm. I feel like I'm just kind of pulling it back to where it should be. So here's a question from Daryl. Daryl wanted to know, how did you find your voice? It's so unique, but it feels really classic at the same time. And then Daryl also Hmm. says... 
God bless you for your Twitch channel. It is the new Bob Ross to me, <laughs> which I kind of know what that means. <laughs> really? That's adorable. Um, all right. Well, uh, you're welcome. I'm happy that my, my gaming is soothing to people, um, especially <laughs> when I'm screaming, I guess, but whatever. Um, so um, in terms of how I find my voice, that is, that is, that is becoming a writer. Um, that is not a thing that I can describe to you because that is a thing that all writers and all artists go through. Basically, as every, as every writer starts the process of becoming a writer, you, you start out by imitating writers that you like, and then you riff on that. Um, and you learn the rules so that you can riff in ways that don't make you know, your audience run screaming. And then you start breaking those rules in ways that kind of mesh with your own personality. There's no how-to that I can describe. It's just a thing that happens over time. Um, so I hope that answers the question. Here's a question from Miranda. Miranda says, I've spent nearly all of my adult life in treatment programs and psych wards, so I'm always curious about if and how authors are thinking about the mental health of their characters. How do you approach that? Uh, well, um, others have, I, I've said this in other interviews, but in my day job life, my own background was that I was uh, in counseling psych. I was actually specifically a career counselor because I initially started out trying to be a personal social counselor and then was like, no, I can't handle this, too much trauma. And then I went into career counseling, which I thought would be better. And surprise, it turns out that uh, a lot of the career difficulty that people have is also rooted in trauma. Um, and so, you know, I've had a lot of experience working with people who were dealing with abuse, with horrible situations, really. Um, I don't want to, you know, kind of get into details, obviously, because these were clients. Um, so, you know, I do often think about people's ability to cope with the trauma that, that I'm inflicting on them as the writer of the story. And, you know, there are points where people are going to break down and maybe recover and maybe not. Um, and I do think about, um, you know, the mental health of the characters as, as I'm going through this. There have been some cases where I've had to write characters who uh, were neuroatypical or who had uh, mental illness disorders that we have names for, but they did not. Most notably, off the top of my head, Ehiru from uh, The Killing Moon schizophrenic. All of the gatherers are varying degrees of schizophrenic. Um, and uh, it's a thing that he effectively medicates over the course of the story with magic. Um, but as, as things happen um, and he's no longer able to, to do that, he's got to cope with that along with all the other stuff that's happening in the story. Um, so these are definitely things that I, that I try and engage with. Um, I try and engage with all of the things that um, make people what they are. Um, and not everybody's got like, you know, 100% uh, ability to cope with things. And, you know, especially when you're writing them in these incredibly traumatic situations. Um, so I try and be honest about that too. All right. So we have just a couple more questions. Here's one from Scott. Scott wanted to know if you could say anything about where this series goes. Like, does it stay in New York or are we opening up to other cities? No, uh, I intend for this to stay closely focused on New York City. Um, and that's largely because New York is the only city, like I said, that I know well enough to, to write this kind of story in. 
but the other piece of that is that um, New York is huge and part of the the discovery or part of the research that I was doing as I was working on this um, was realizing just how huge how many sub communities of New York there are how many secrets uh, there are within the city you know there are pieces of New York that I've never seen before places within the city that I never heard of and I've lived here on and off for most like like half my life so you know like for the longest time I never heard of City Island City Island is like a tiny piece of New England it's like Nantucket in New York um, but it's in the middle of the city and I had no idea it was here for the longest time um, so I suddenly discovered City Island um, I went back to Staten Island for the first time in years I live in Brooklyn right across the river from Staten Island never visited there so I had to kind of get to know like if I'm going to write about these city, the, these pieces of the city, I need to know their character. Um, and New York, there's just so much here that I think there's plenty that I can explore in the city over the course of the trilogy without uh, boring people. But I hope so. We'll see. Isn't Nora awesome? So as I mentioned, we are going to record our panel discussion of this book in the last week of May, and we would love for you to be a part of that. Like, what's your favorite part of the book? Or was the book even what you expected? Are there any themes that you'd like us to discuss? All you need to do is record your comment on your phone. Don't forget to tell us who you are and where you're calling from. Then email the audio to nerdatpodcast at gmail.com. And then you can tune in on Friday, May 29th to hear the conversation. The show was produced by me along with Justin Bull. Our executive producer is Brendan Banazak. Extra bonus thanks to the WBEZ event team and, of course, to Nora Jemison. All right. Talk to you all next week. Sweet. Did we do it? Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.